When Pope Benedict visited Paris last September, he delivered a very important speech, uh, actually uh, a lecture uh, rather than a speech. He's always much of a professor. Uh, he delivered this lecture to the French scholars and uh, intellectuels in the just renovated uh, Couvent des Bernardins in the heart of Quartier Latin. And this speech or lecture was centered on the monastic theology of the Middle Ages. Uh, we used to oppose, you know, the monastic theology to the scholastic theology as more effusive, affective, meditative, and in a way more mystical. And the Pope quoted twice Don Jean Leclerc, who was the uh, erudite and brilliant editor of Saint Bernard of Clairvaux's complete works. And he quoted also the title of his most famous book, but he quoted it as a matter of course, uh, without even saying it was the title of one of the books of Don Jean Leclerc, or even uh, that it was the title of a book, as convinced that everyone in the audience would identify it. Of course, he was wrong. Maybe uh, 10 persons uh, on uh, 500 uh, knew the book. And uh, this magnificent title is <coughs> L'amour des lettres et le désir de Dieu. The love of literature and the desire of God. And it has study of monastic theology in the Middle Ages. The love of literature and the desire of God that was the whole life of medieval monks and it was the core of monastic theology. Now, scholars who study, who have the love of letters, scholars who study literature are often doomed to be unhappy with the subject. Whatever issues they want to deal with, they have to specify that they will restrain the study to the literature and examine these issues in the mirror of literature. So they study, we study uh, love in literature, war in literature, death in literature, uh, social uh, transgression in literature, uh, etc. And more than once, this restriction may be irrelevant. Why just in literature and not in real life on a, or in other fields of knowledge, uh, other fields of intellectual activity like uh, science or philosophy or medicine? What is so special in a way about literature? Yes, what is so special about literature? Tonight, why could not my topic just be the contemplation of God in the Middle Ages instead of the contemplation of God in the literature of the Middle Ages? Of course, it could. But adding in the literature is neither trivial nor irrelevant in this particular case. Literature sets a special problem. Is there a link between seeking God and reading 
and or writing literature. Is there a link between l'amour des lettres et le désir de Dieu? And if so, what kind of a link? Is literature a help or an obstacle in seeking God? It is a very old debate, as old as Christianity, and it has two aspects. The first one concerns almost every kind of intellectual activity. The second one has more specifically to do with poetry. The first one. What is the use for a Christian? What was the use for a Christian of all the literature, science, and philosophy of the pagan antiquity? What was the use? None was a frequent answer. It kept being one for many centuries. But as everybody knows, as early as the fourth, fourth century, both the most prominent authorities of Christianity in the Latin world, St. Hieronymus, the translator of the Bible, and St. Augustine, pronounced in favor of studying the classical letters. The sons of Israel had the right to marry a pagan captive, provided that they transform her into a Hebrew wife in the Leviticus. And Hieronymus referred to that. The Hebrews were entitled to take with them the jewels of the Egyptians when they flew from Egypt, said Augustine. In the same way, the Christians are entitled to study the pagan literature of an exercise and a preparation to the study of the Holy Scripture. This exercise is more important since God reveals himself through texts which are more than once, more than once deliberately literary texts like the Psalms, the Song of Songs, or most of the prophecies. Paying attention to the words, to the grammar, to the sentences, to the style, to the images, to the rhetoric, which was exactly what you learned at school with the teacher of grammar by reading and explaining and memorizing ancient pagan literature, was essential to the exegesis of the Bible. It was a tool for the search of God. But this ancient pagan literature, this ancient Greek and Latin literature, was most of the time poetry. But the legitimacy of poetry in itself, as a proper activity for a Christian, was a different and a more arduous matter. For the paganism of the classical antiquity, like for many religions and cultures, poetry has something to do with religion, with God, with everything sacred. Poetry was originally and keeps being in a certain way uh, a medium with the sacred. But for the Christianism, it is no such thing as poetry being a medium with God. Poetry as a medium with God is useless and inappropriate. If God himself 
came as a man among us. If he lived, walked, spoke among us at a certain point of history, what the good of a particular medium to know him? We have the whole story related in the gospel. We know what he said and what he taught. What is left to poetry is uh, that it is a mere art of life. Poetry is, a, is an art of life first because it does not say directly straight on what it has to say, but makes use of figures of language, but is essentially metaphorical, is subject to bent and windings because of the metric rules. And Isodorus of Sevilla in the 7th century conversely says that the etymology of posa is posum for posum, straight on. And second, precisely because of its link with the pagan religion, the poet tells lies. That means it tells stories from, a, from the mythology, from a false religion. For a long time, until the 14th century at least, the very word poeta in Latin, poet in French, refers to a pagan priest. And when uh, Benoit de Saint-Maur in the Roman de Troyes, which reads the Trojan War for the first time in French, uh, circa uh, 1170, when Benoit de Saint-Maur describes the funerals of Patrocles or of Hector, he says that poets celebrate the religious service. He knows that they are pagans, so the priests are called poets. At the dawn of Christianity and at the dawn of the Middle Ages, there is no place left for poetry in the relation between man and God. But at the same time, Christianity gives a paramount importance to each particular person with his or her particular thoughts and feelings and thoughts and sins and longing for conversion. In a word, Christianity gives a paramount importance to each what poetry would be the best literary way to formulate and to express. And uh, Hegel uh, would say that the third and last age for aesthetics, the modern age, which he calls the romantic age, succeeding the symbolical age and the classical age, defined itself by subjectivity, a conformity between the form and the idea, contrary to the symbolical age, but a free conformity, contrary to the uh, classical age. And this Age begins with Christianity and with the Middle Ages. So there is no place left for poetry, but at the same time, there is a strong need for expressing the personal relation between man and God. This relation, the monastic theology is so attentive to understand and to describe. And the best expression of this relation could be a poetical one. There is no place left for poetry, and poetry is blamed for being untrue, for not speaking straight, for using figures of speech, metaphors, allegories. 
but figures of speech, metaphors, allegories are used by the Bible and by Christ himself in his parables as the main way and the main tool for teaching the truth. And the allegorical, allegorical thought, I'm sorry for my accent, is the main tool of the exegesis since origin. And since uh, uh, Philo the Jew and so on. We could relate or summarize the whole history of medieval poetry as a slow and hard conquest of a new legitimacy towards religion. First, through a liturgical poetry, since Ambrosius, then through a didactical and edifying poetry, and eventually through a personal poetry. Conversely, the personal relation between man and God, the contemplation of God, the psychological and moral stages of grades of the contemplation are best expressed, described, and analyzed, not necessarily in a poem, but by the means of the poetical language. And it is what uh, many authors do. And in this process, the music was a great help, of a particular help, to the poetry. And why? Because a very particular fact, the most important treatise on music for the Middle Ages was the Tractatus de Musica of Boetius. And some medieval commentaries of Boetius substitute to the Pythagorean Musica Mundana, the music of the planets and stars, the harmony of the universe. Substitute to the uh, Musica Mundana, the what so-called Musica Celestis, that is, the music of the angels, the angels choir eternally singing around the throne of God. But this music, the music of the angels, is for the Middle Ages a real music, a sensible uh, music. And the first consequence of this change, of this substitution of, of uh, Musica Celesti, uh, Musica Celesti to Musica Mondana, the first consequence is that the Middle Ages does not despise the sensible music as inferior to the abstract and mathematical harmony of the universe, as Plato does. For him, the sensible music is nothing, just mathematics, the mathematical harmony of the universe is beautiful. But it's not so for the Middle Ages. Praising the Lord through the music, through sensible music, through songs, and actually through the Gregorian songs, is the perfect praise of God because it is the very praise the angels in heaven address him. 
and sins and, uh, uh, and awful says precisely that uh, the angels in heaven uh, sing uh, on the uh, eight modes of the Gregorian, uh, Gregorian music. And since the liturgical music is made of songs, the poetry of the songs is, if I can say so, saved with the music and through uh, the music. The typical liturgical song which raises the soul towards God and can be considered an equivalent on earth of the angel song in heaven is of course the song of the Psalms. And at the beginning of the ninth century, Smaragdus, uh, abbot of St. Miguel, writes that the ones who sing the psalms with a pure heart is united with the angels in heaven. And it's the first quotation uh, of your um, handout. Psalmodiae hic virtus ostendito, ut qui puro corde inter omnes psalit, etiam sosum cum angelis canere videatur. We find, no, I cannot speak of everything and I'm too slow and so on. So I have an example and a, a very particular one, a very small one, but at the end I hope to show that a small example uh, so illuminates everything. Illuminates, it's too strong a word, but my, so I don't find the word just now. We find an illustration of this link between music, poetry, or at least a kind of rhetorical and harmonious effusion, and contemplation. And what's more, we find it in vernacular. In the text I will speak of for a few instances, in a French sermon or treatise of the late 12th century, evidently written by a Cistercian or under Cistercian influence on uh, so a sermon on the last psalm, Psalm 150, Laudate. As an exhortation to the praise of God on various music instruments, this psalm makes the music a metaphor of the climb towards God. And you have the, uh, the psalm here, I don't need uh, to, uh, to read it, everybody knows it by heart. The French sermon, is there, uh, the sermon uh, is uh, in four or five manuscripts, but in one of them is at the end of the translation of the 44 first sermon of Saint Bernard on the Son, Song of Songs. So the relation with contemplation, I will speak about it in a few moments, and with uh, the Cistercians is quite evident. The French sermon is very attentive both to the music and to the language. The author knows how to speak of the music, how to find poetical equivalents of the music through the figures of language, through comparisons, echoes on sonorities of the words, developments and shortcuts of the language in order to suggest how the soul is longing for God and fainting eventually in the presence of God. 
in the whole subject of the seventh. But his commentary, his description of this ascension towards God is entirely based upon the music. And to describe, to comment, to explain this very approach of God, to unveil the spiritual truth, he uses the comparison with the music. For him, the psalm is an antenna composed of two groups or two sets of seven notes corresponding to the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in the uh, third uh, quotation, Sienier, uh, I prefer to quote in French, even old French, but rather uh, in my alpha language because the translation is mine, so it's worth that all. Sienien seulement psaume, ainsi et also ainsi comme les antiévènes qu'on chante après les psaumes. Si vous demandez de quel ton il est, je dis qu'il est de cet hymne, car en cet antiévène a deux clauses, et en chacune clause a sept notes qui vont tout dire en montant selon les sept dons d'El Saint-Esprit. Why the seventh tone? It, has, uh, it means the seventh Gregorian mode. There are eight modes in the Gregorian music. Why the seventh, particularly? Uh, well, maybe uh, because there are seven uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. It was the explanation I had the first time I, I read the, uh, this text. But it, it is not only uh, this region. It is not this region at all. It is a seventh stone because the seventh Gregorian mode is the highest mode. It starts from G up and climbs until the G of the following octave. Now, because it is a, a technical, an autant uh, mode. Uh, when the last mode, the eighth mode, although starting from G up, is a plagal mode and stops at the third and the, the following G. So it's not so high. Now. The Middle Ages, like high notes and high-pitched voices, chanter à voix haute et serie, uh, to sing with a high-pitched and sweet voice, the ideal. Our sermon in another part blames the envious for having a hoarse voice and being unable to climb even until the first note. The highest, mode, uh, the highest mode, which is not the last and ultimate one, but the last but one, is the perfect one, the most beautiful, the best meta metaphor, and the perfect image of moral perfection and of mystical ascension, because it's, it's the highest. Besides, Besides, the author observes that the psalm book already starts from very high up with the first verse of the first psalm. Everybody knows, Beatus vir qui non habit in concilio impiorum. But 
that he climbs still much higher at the end since the first verse of the last psalm, our psalm, psalm 150, urges to praise God in his sense, laudate dominum in sanctis eius. You know, uh, 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 the, the English translation that puts in uh, your God uh, translates exactly in his sense. At, uh, for the rest, it is the translation that found it in the Guidon Bible, or Bible, I must confess. But uh, uh, you know, also, it's a detail, but uh, I don't want to seem. Uh, irreverential toward the English translation. Uh, uh, Hieronymus, uh, who was, uh, there are two trans, uh, there are two texts of the Psalms, the text of the Septanta in Greek, and the text of the Masoretic Hebrew Bible, which is uh, more recent, but is in Hebrew. And uh, uh, Hieronymus uh, saw that the two texts are very often very different. So he translated both. And in the Vulgate, you have two translations of the Psalms. Uh, 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 after uh, the Septanta and after uh, the Hebrew Bible. And uh, after the Septanta, it is uh, Laudate uh, Dominum in Sanctis Eus. And after the Hebrew Bible, Laudate Dominum uh, in Sancto Eus. So uh, the English translation, official translation, is in his sanctuary and not in his sense. So, but uh, the uh, Catholic liturgy has adopted uh, the uh, translation from the Septanta and uh, translates uh, from itself. Uh, I'm sorry for his parenthesis and his so awkward parenthesis. Well, anyway, uh, the uh, psalm book begins very high with Beatus working on a beat in Concilio in Pio Home. But uh, it climbs. Uh, till laudate dominum in sanctis eius. And why uh, is it an ascension? Because it very well not to sin and not to uh, frequent the sinners, Beatus way, but it is still better um, to, uh, to love. And uh, the psalm which you're just to praise God in his sense, you're just to love. And the author comments such an exhortation in these terms. It's just what I said. It is a very high perfection not to sin. But it is a much higher one to love the good which is in the others. To love uh, the, the others because there are sense. It is still better to praise God in his sense. To love the good which is in the others. So it is a perfect harmony between the musical, the moral, and the mystical elevation or ascension. The very comment that Psalm 150 is both both a psalm and the antenna which is, which is sung after the psalms 
is relevant since the psalm is the last one and, and since this musical psalm is like the final melody of the whole book of the psalms. But there is still another thing left and maybe a more important one. The two successive ascending and parallel scales of notes the author describes figure exactly the progression and the dialectic of the union with God and of the love of the neighbor, of the rush contemplation of the soul ravished in God, but just for an instant, and the definitive contemplation of the whole being, body and soul, completely lost in God. The sermon climbs successively, successively these two scales of seven notes, and there is a parallelism between the two scales. The same notes in two different octaves mean the same gift of the Holy Spirit, because it is this description of the gifts of the Holy Spirit during the whole uh, sermon. The second and higher scale leads to the mystical happiness in God. But actually, the seventh note of the third scale already leaded to the mystical happiness. But this happiness was not a perfect one because, said the author, the body was not included in it. It was a contemplation of God, right, but just a happiness of the soul, a mere contemplation of the soul. Now, that looks like a paradox to us. Is not the body, and particularly in the medieval notions, an obstacle to the union with God? No, it is not, since we expect the resurrection of the body. And we all remember what St. Paul says about himself in the second epistle to the Corinthians. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was coughed up, coughed up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body I do not know, whether out of the body I do not know, God knows how he was, he was coughed up into paradise and had inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. St. Paul dares not say he was actually cuffed up into paradise with his body, but it is obvious that he thinks it is better, more flattering, I dare say so, being cuffed up into paradise with than without his body. But these two scales of notes to come back to uh, my sermon, my sermon, this sermon. Uh, these two scales of notes with the two climaxes of spiritual happiness, first without, then with the body, mean also something else and refer precisely to a precise idea 
of the contemplation of God. The spiritual authors of this time, particularly the Cistercians, but also the Victorians, uh, also always describe the same stages of the contemplation. First, uh, there is a relatively fast climbing, climbing, a fast ascension, with a first meeting with God, if I dare say so, a first spiritual happiness, a first beatitude. But it is just a first stage, or the provisory climax of the first uh, grades, of the first stages. It is not the ultimate stage of contemplation. It is necessary to go back down to the concrete, effective, practical love of the next, of the neighbor, before climbing again, but this time with more difficulty, with more pain, carrying the whole weight of the love of the next and the whole weight, our whole life, not our whole humanity, uh, body and soul, climbing again and this time higher and definitely and experiencing the real mystical union with God. And but a few years before our sermon, we find the same concern in uh, uniting the love of God and the love of the next on the way towards contemplation in a, a treatise of uh, the great Richard of Saint-Victor, the four greats of violent charity, the quattro gradibus violentae caritatis. The first grade is loving the other for your own sake. It's very bad, of course. No. The second grade is loving him or her for his or her sake. The third grade is loving him or her in God. And the fourth grade is loving God in him or her. And at the end, at the end is the pure contemplation of God. And you see, it is a variation on the same theme. Well, you may think that uh, I dwelt uh, far too long on a very obscure sermon and how right you are. But in doing so, we covered all the way from the rehabilitation, from a religious point of view, of poetry through music. The psalm is a poem, but a poem about music and a poem which is a song to God. So all the way uh, from the rehabilitation of poetry through music to contemplation and also the way from contemplation back to literature. Because we are now in the very heart, at the very core, both of the spiritual thought of the Middle Ages and of the literary and moral conceptions of the greatest and more influential French 
poet and novelist of the Middle Ages, Chrétien de Troyes. This double movement and this double ascension towards the contemplation of God, we find, for instance, and I quote only a few texts which were either translated into vernacular or directly written vernacular, we find, for instance, in Alanus ab Insulis, De Sexalis Cherubim, in the so-called uh, Sermon of, on the Palm Tree, in uh, Saint Edmund of Abingdon's Mirror of the Saint Eglise, and in many, many uh, other sermons of treatise, of uh, texts, uh, spiritual and religious texts. But uh, we find that also in a uh, poet like Chrétien de Troyes. Let's consider also what is the main feature in of, uh, the main feature of the story in all, uh, in seemingly almost all, but actually in all. Uh, I have no time to uh, develop it. Chrétien de Troyes romances. Chrétien tells us again and again the story of a young knight who is first successful very easily, very quickly, by chance, by a stroke of luck, without difficulty, no pain, and who very quickly reaches the most extraordinary achievement. But he does not understand the prize, still less the meaning of whatever it is he got. Nor does he understand the duties this very achievement imposes upon him. So he loses all, generally after about a third of the Romans. And he has to conquer and obtain it again, but, but this time by a very slow process with difficulty and pain, with the suffering which is the very mark of the conscience. Because he has to understand and to interiorize everything what happens to him, every adventure, and he has to understand what really was required, required uh, from him. So it's exactly the same movement in a literary context. That is uh, the story of Erech. He uh, he the, uh, uh, the best at the tournament and he marries a very uh, charming uh, uh, young girl and he the, the son of a king and uh, uh, King Arthur and uh, Queen uh, Guenier are very happy to see him again and welcome uh, uh, his bride and uh, everything is perfect. Uh, you know. But uh, he didn't uh, realize what it was uh, to be married and uh, how to manage his different duties, his duties as a husband and his duties as a knight. And so uh, he loses uh, almost everything. He has to conquer it again. And it's the same with Yvain. Uh, it's 
also a story about uh, uh, the duties and the responsibilities and the meaning of uh, marriage. And of course, it's most of all the story of Perceval, who does not understand anything uh, in presence of the grail and throws everything and has to, uh, uh, to uh, search this grail castle. Uh, uh, he found the first time without searching it, uh, without looking for it so easily uh, for years and years uh, in, uh, of dereliction and almost despair and uh, uh, forgetting God and forgetting himself and so on. And uh, this movement uh, is so well understood uh, by the uh, readers of Chrétien de Troyes and by successors, by the other writers. It is so well understood that the great romances afterwards, so different they may be, and they all are, so different they may be uh, from Chrétien's Comte du Graal, all stick to the same idea, to the same idea that the visit to the Grail Castle, the mere fact to find the Grail Castle on his way is no merit, no achievement in itself. You have to deeply understand what you do and you have to have searched and desired for a long time what you eventually found. In Le Haut Livre du Graal, Perles Vaus, the King Hermit says to Lancelot, and you have the quotation on your hand out, Se vous fussiez en autre tel désiriez longuement de vouer le Graal comme vous êtes de vouer la reine, vous l'eussiez vu. If you, if you have had for a long time the same desire to see the Graal as you have to see the Queen, you already. Uh, would have seen it. And in the same romance, not only Gauvin, Galwin, finds the Grail Castle, not only sits he at the Grail table, not only sees he the Holy Grail, but he has a mystical vision and he sees above the Grail the crucified Christ still he is con condemned and far more he is condemned because of this very vision actually because of his very contemplation of God because he sees the Christ crucified because he contemplates God himself he forgets to ask the question he knew he had to ask. Gauvin is not, as Perceval the first time, who doesn't know he has to ask a question. Gauvin finds a great castle and thinks, I have to ask a question. And everybody in the castle uh, tells him, don't forget to ask the question. And the great appears and he sees the Christ and because of this vision, he forgets to ask um, the question. Why? Because of this contemplation, but the first grade, the first scale of contemplation, he forgets uh, to pay attention to the other. 
You forget this love of the uh, neighbor to pay attention to the sufferings of uh, uh, the fisher king. And he is therefore excluded from, from the real and ultimate contemplation of God, which is signified by the grail. The main thing is to desire because we only pay attention to what we desire. It is why Saint Bernard of Clairvaux insists that God is thoughtful. A thoughtful God anticipates our desire in first giving us the desire of him. And Saint Bernard says, 500 years before Pascal, tu ne me chercherais pas si tu ne m'avais trouvé. You have the text. Nemo te querere valet, nisiqui prius in vederit. Nobody can be in search of you if he did not find you before. Why uh, is such a sentence true? Bernard explained a few lines uh, before, uh, before uh, uh, why it is true. Prevenit, sustinet, implet, ipse facet ut desideres, ipse est quod desideras. He anticipates, he supports, he fulfills. He is himself what makes you desire. He is himself what you desire. And Etienne Gilson gives a very beautiful paraphrase of this formula. Dieu est à la fois ce que nous désirons et ce qui fait que nous le désirons. And uh, we only pay attention to what we desire. It is the very secret of love. And it is exactly what Simon Weil said about the Grail legend. I did not translate the magnificent uh, quotation of uh, uh, Simon Weil in a letter to the uh, poet uh, Joey Bousquet. But uh, um, you'll see, uh, the philosophy of Simon Weil is so important part, a philosophy of attention, attention versus will. The will uh, can nothing because the will concentrates of uh, yourself. No. You say, uh, yes, I can make it. I will make it and I'll make it. And you just think uh, uh, about yourself and that you want and can make it. Of course, you cannot uh, make it because uh, we, we, you're not attentive to what you have to make. And uh, if you want to uh, uh, translate the difficult uh, uh, Greek sentence on to resolve the difficult mathematical problem, is the two examples of Simon Weil, you have to, uh, uh, one has to, to forget oneself and uh, just be attentive to what uh, uh, one has to study. No, no. So uh, she says, so, but, uh, I, sh I, thought, uh, I was too lazy to translate that. Uh, uh, attention is uh, the purest form of generosity. You know. And what is attention? It, it is the capacity uh, to ask the other, what is your suffering? Uh, and uh, uh, she said, you, uh, you don't 
have this capacity at first. You have to spend many years of suffering, of dereliction and almost of despair. You have to spend your life in this suffering before being able to ask this question. And this is a very story of the grail, she says. And uh, this question, uh, what is your suffering, is, um, doesn't appear uh, with this form in uh, Chrétien III's romance. Uh, she did not read uh, probably Chrétien III, but it appears in Wolfram von Eschenbach. And after that in, uh, in Wagner, it's the uh, second question, uh, the, the second time uh, Parsifal uh, comes to the uh, Grail Castle. It uh, asks eventually at the end, uh, uh, Uncle, uh, what is your suffering? What is your torment? What is uh, your turn? And uh, uh, for uh, Simon Weil, it is the most important thing uh, in the world to be able um, to ask this question. And what I have said about uh, contemplation in the poor, small, little sermon uh, I examined uh, with you, uh, but in all these other uh, texts of the uh, Middle Ages who describe two scales, uh, a first contemplation uh, just for the sake of the contemplation and without the concrete love of uh, the other, and uh, a second contemplation with the love of the other. It's exactly that. I must confess uh, that uh, my method uh, in this lecture, not, not only my English is terrible, not uh, only my uh, accent is uh, preposterous, but my method is a very, uh, was a very bad one. I should have, uh, have uh, first inquired uh, the meaning of the very word contemplation in the Middle Ages. And I must confess now that this word does not usually refer to a mystical state, to what we call contemplation, but to meditation and more precisely to a kind of vivid memory of the life and the passion of Christ uh, like uh, and, uh, and many religious ties are uh, kind of uh, uh, methods of meditation, methods of memories of uh, um, the life of passion of Christ. And uh, for instance, at the end of the Middle Ages, La Montagne de Contemplation de, uh, of Jean Gerson. Still, I was not entirely wrong. Uh, what I have said, it is also to be actually found in the text, and I tried to show it. Not only is it to be found in the text, it is the very pride, richness, and nourishment, in my opinion, of medieval literature. I thank you, and I apologize uh, really for, uh, for my English.